Hello and welcome to Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Rita Denny. She's the Executive Director of the Ethnographic Praxis and Industry Conference. And we're going to chat a little bit about that and um, what she's up to. Hello, Rita. Hello, Jay. It's great How to be here. How are you today? Here. We're good. It's great to talk with you. Good, good. For those of you who don't know you really well, let's uh, let's begin with some background about you and sort of, you know, what led you to where you are today. Sure. Uh, so I would describe myself as an anthropologist by training and a consumer researcher by profession. Uh, and that's, that's the, the route going from uh, anthropologist to consumer researcher was uh, not an expected one, but but it happened, and I have been in consumer research forever, always on the consultancy side. So the what's what's known in the industry as the supplier side. Uh, so as a partner in, in Practica Group, which is a boutique consultancy that applies anthrop- an anthropological lens to products and services, uh, both existing and in the future. And largely for 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 profit companies, but sometimes as well for uh, nonprofit. And I guess the only other thing that I would say is that I very much see myself as an anthropologist in business. That both those roles apply. Uh, so with with Patty Sunderland, sort of, you know, taking on writing projects, doing anthropology and consumer research, or the Handbook of Anthropology and Business, as well as as I have a teaching gig at Northwestern in spring quarters in the integrated marketing communication program. And mm-hmm. that class is very much a sort of grounded in fieldwork and cultural analysis uh, for people who will be professionals and in, in, in marketing and communications or in design. So, uh, you know, sort of both those roles of being an anthropologist, but firmly planted in business is, is kind of a space that I have enjoyed inhabiting. Yeah, I'm curious. I, I know that a lot of our listeners to Ethnopod also are either in the transition from academic uh, settings to industry settings or thinking about it. What was that transition like for you? Uh, so I don't think that I thought about it. It was not a it was not a planned decision. It was more uh, a serendipitous one where when I finished my degree uh, in anthropology, uh, the the um, academic job market was pretty bad, as it currently is as well. Some things don't change. And, and it was just a very uh, serendipitous connection that a friend made to someone, a fellow anthropologist who was working in industry. And, and that was history. And that was, that was many moons ago. So it was, I guess, that, that trans, in that transition, though, what was imp- I think what's important is to think think about, or what was important for me anyway, was uh, to think about industry and business, which I had never thought about before, as a sort of place of meaning making, and that inhabiting that space can be extremely sort of thoughtful, reflective, as well as practical and and innovative. Mm-hmm. So and so you jumped right into a consulting I oh, did. Sorry. Yes, I did. And was sent to right. West Texas within the first week of my uh, employment. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite something. And the whole wardrobe change that had to happen as well. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. You had to drop your, your beads and your exactly. long earrings. Exactly. Yeah. I had like 
heels on and stuff. It was, it didn't last very long. The heels didn't last very long, but yeah, <laughs> there was a whole wardrobe shift. Right. So I'm curious how you um, arrived at your current role as uh, executive director. Uh, well, in addition to obviously your own business um, consultancy, yeah. but um, you're also also serving now as the executive director of Epic. And I'm curious how that came about. Yeah. So, so the executive director position is a, is a new one for Epic. Uh, it is, and I think reflects the fact that Epic has grown quite a lot in the last few years. And the, the, People who are part of the Epic community hail from a variety of different um, uh, different backgrounds and different positions in in industry. So they could be technology companies who are sort of new or old tech. Uh, they could be products and services companies, design firms, consultancies, large and small, universities, government or nonprofit. So so the the Epic community itself has expanded in terms of where people hail from, as well as the numbers of people that have, have become part of the community. And uh, at the same time, so that's sort of one hand for reason for, for having a position of executive director. But, but another reason also is that, that ethnographic work and doing ethnography in, in having an ethnographic approach or doing ethnography in industry itself has changed, right? And it's gone from, I think, an age of discovery, which was, you know, I would say in the 1980s, early on applications, uh, to one I would say is commodification, sort of in the 2000s and in the aughts. And mm-hmm. now I think is maturing into sort of a, a more professional sort of a professionalization and professional phase of things. And so so there was need, I think, for the executive director position or to, you know, it made sense to, to expand sort of the staff from one to two, I should say, at Epic, <laughs> uh, to include the role of executive director. And, and basically, you know, the, the, the goal there is how can Epic be a resource and engine for creating change in organizations, right? I mean, that's, mm. that's where Epic has been. That's where Epic is. It will be in the future. How can it create value? How can it, how can it steer change in how organizations think about their own endeavors? And my particular interest anyway for, for Epic in the near term is to become more robustly global. Uh, we are you know, members hail from around the world, but there is a predominance right now in, the, in in North America. One of the things that I've noticed at Epic, having attended since way back when, is that there's a lot of talk among people sort of in between the sessions and, and there's a great deal of you know, sharing experiences and and also sort of, you know, sharing war stories and that kind of thing. And one of the things that comes up a lot of times in those conversations are the challenges that people face. And I'm wondering, are there are there certain kinds of patterns that you see about yeah. challenges for people in the industry? Um, and if you'd like to, you know, expand on that. Sure. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, things change really slowly, um, though perhaps present circumstances accepted. But uh, but but business prevailing business practices, I think, are are very difficult to change. So, so things that have existed for a while, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we are still challenges today. Uh, so for example, uh, seeing, seeing people as 
sort of understanding human action through through a psychological prism, for example, right? The psychological self, and and you can see that in the words that 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 people use. We want to understand those deep needs. We we want to understand motivations and desires. That kind of framework for for understanding human action is is extremely prevalent, at least in the United States. It was you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it's still, it's still a challenge to, to grapple with that frame of reference and to understand and, and introduce ideas of, of individuals as social beings embedded in, in larger systems. Mm. I think another, you know, another challenge, persistent, persistent challenge is, is the, the grail of, of unbiased truth. Uh, yet another sort of business practice where if we, if we, and it's, it's, it's a discourse. It's a, it's a way of sort of constructing sometimes our research practices, not ours, but, but sort of research practices in industry that we just want to choose methods and we want them to be unbiased. And we, we don't have a very sophisticated theoretical set of uh, resources to draw on that that looks at that looks at behavior not simply as a uh, sort of transparently obvious of what's going on to a more analytic interpretation of what's going on so mm-hmm. that's still i think still can be still can be difficult and i guess the last one that i would 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 cite is the uh, the notion of the sovereign consumer, and that's where where people that oftentimes there's an assumption that an individual is making a decision, right? <laughs> so, right. so surveys are are premised on that. You know that we we direct our questions to a person, we ask people for their opinions. We you know everything is th- this notion that th- that there is this unit called a consumer that that is sovereign in, in making distinctions. Again, where a lack of sort of visualization of, of a consumer that's embedded in relationships to, to other objects and people and relationships. So so, yeah, I, yeah. so those kinds of things I think are still, we're, we're still battling them, right? So in the, mm-hmm. in the halls of a conference or in epic talks or in, you know, the blogs and perspectives, we're still trying to, to, Rapper, you know, find ways to introduce alternate ways to work with and negotiate and navigate prevailing discourses. I think we always will. Yeah, and I think a lot of the the practices that you talk about within business are also themselves embedded within business cultures. So it's a little hard to separate. Though you know, like these aren't simply habits to break, or maybe they are habits in some ways, but um, they're embedded with lots of other decision making processes that are privileged within a company. Right. Um, <laughs> There's that part too, right? Yeah, so, so even if you have a, right, the whole organizations are organized around those kinds of, of, of practices and understandings. Yes. Yeah. And I think you and I have talked about in the past, this idea that I love the, the first one you talked about is sort of this privileging of psychology as one of the, one of the lenses through which business often tries to approach understanding people or their customers and I, and I think, you know, part of that, at least from my perspective, comes from, you know, the fifties the and the sixties and the, the, you know, that in many ways, psychology became finally made its way into the living room. Right. And there were many people who were sort of, you know, there are lots of ways in which like psychology today became popular reading and things like that. 
And when you think to, you know, when you think back to, you know, okay, what is the parallel in anthropology? Sort of our last person that even that was well known and that made their way into the, sort of the popular imaginary imagination is Margaret Mead. And since then, we really don't have, uh, you know, a person who's you know, dedicated themselves, I would say, right. to making that headway. Right. And it's I, kind I, of I a public intellectual. Right. Yeah, exactly. We don't have a good, tra- we don't have a good tradition of that, I think, within, within the United States, at least coming from social sciences and, and from anthropology, for sure not. Yeah, I think that that is we're working at a disadvantage in some ways because of that. I think right, agreed. Right. So think? then we go back to tropes. I'm sorry, we go back to sure. tropes of 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 anthropology as as you know archaeology and digging and exotic lands and all the rest of it, rather than right, right. In fact, many of us have to go through that screen <laughs> before we even get to what it is that cultural anthropology brings. Yes, agreed. I'm, I'm curious, what do you think um, EPIC members are saying that they get most out of, you know, participating in, in the organization? You know, we've talked about these obstacles. Are there, you know, what are the other things that you hear most frequently from your members? You know, I think that the, I think that for people who participate in the conference or, or participate in, at, you know, on epicpeople.org through a talk or a course or a tutorial of some kind. I think that the that that what they're getting is a sense of definitely a sense of home, a sense of community, and and an ability to expand and engage, expand their own sense of of community and connection and a resource for sharing expertise. So mm-hmm. if we look at if we look at the epic community and and think of it you know, like there, there are two pieces that I think are critical for a thriving community. One is that that we establish some set of, you know, sort of common understandings, right, about what it is that we're up to and what it is that we can bring to, to the various work practices that we engage in. The other is to be constantly infused by other frames of reference and points of view. And that second piece is really important because the community is diverse and we want it to be that way, right? So we want it to be inclusive, but also to be able to, to incorporate other, other points of view. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a moving target in that case, and, uh, but, but we have to deliver on both of those things. So, so for, for people who come to the conference, I think that the, the conference really does do both of those things. So it could be from professional development kinds of tutorials where there's practical skills, there's exposure to new, you know, different kinds of approaches and, and practical implementation, all the way to sort of conceptual leadership, whether that's in the form of a keynote or papers or salons that, that take on a particular kind of topic and and discussion, or even some tutorials that 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 tend to be driven more conceptually. So mm-hmm. I think that that the conference you can see both you know both ends of that the, the, that spectrum, sort of establishing common understanding as well as infusion of new ideas, and and in that process creating meaningful work. And there's a sense of being participating in creating meaningful engagement. I think that's what 
that, that people talk about, and that's what can be very energizing. And it and it happens on Epic People as well. I mean, that, and that's the goal, right? To to be able sure. to to have that sense of energy and sharing and shared expertise. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have a sense of how many um, Epic members are flying solo? Basically, you know, the only social scientist or the only you know person with a with that background in their organization? I think that quite a lot, actually. You know, we hear about different companies that are hiring all these, you know, social scientists or or um, ethnographers and so on. But I, that my my guess is that they can uh, they are often part of uh, larger teams, multidisciplinary teams, which is great. But it can also be a lonely existence um, because you're both in and of right. You're you're in a mm-hmm. team, but but what you're also bringing. Your, the expertise that you are providing and bringing to the party is your ability to to s- take a step outside and and to understand the in, the endeavor of the team, what it's trying to do, to understand that in in in, in a different kind of scope. So, when you come to Epic, or whether you're participating in a in a in a webinar, there is a sense of I want to say a little bit, a little bit of relief and a lot of delight to to say, oh yeah, I don't have to explain my existence. I don't have to explain all these, you know, <laughs> these assumptions. You get what I'm talking about. So there, there's yeah. definitely that. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because some of our background can work to our advantage in those situations as well. As you mentioned, you know, sort of taking that ethnographic lens and aiming it inward at a team and. Really trying to get a you know lean on our skills like facilitation and that sort of professional stranger the insider insider outsider status, it's a lot of pressure, but it's but it also comes in handy as well if you're flying solo like that. Yeah, um, I think that Aaron Taylor recently wrote up a, a blog post on Epic People, and she talked about sort of the outsider status of of being an ethnographer in an organization. And her take was, we need to embrace it, just professionalize it, right? That's what we're bringing. Don't apologize. Bring it to the forefront. That's mm-hmm. what we're about. That's what we can contribute. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of what what I argue in ethnographic thinking as well. It's like, just right. you know, there's there's no reason to to not use those skills in other settings. In addition to, you know, informing strategy of an organization as well. There's no reason that our skills, like things like curiosity or facilitation, and all those things that we bring couldn't be used more broadly. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the conference itself because we've we've got one coming up in, um, and we're at a particular moment in history. I'm curious how you guys are responding to, you know, the COVID-19 situation. Yes. So the uh, couple, well, we're responding in a few ways. In terms of the conference, we recently de- we decided just uh, a few days ago uh, that we would be uh, virtual, and mm-hmm. and that we and that the challenge then for us is is to be very epic in our virtual rendition of the conference, right? So, how can we be meaningful together? How can we expand and engage with community? How can we feel as though we're home, and while we're sitting in front of a computer, and also, how to, uh, well, I guess the, the wonderful possibility that it opens up is that people who wouldn't have 
been able to go to Australia into Melbourne can can still attend. And so we really probably for the first time will be global, right? So typically a number of countries, last year I think 21 countries are represented at the conference and but mostly North American attendees. So this time we are really trying to, you know, we it, it, we see it as an opportunity that we can can sort of bring that value system uh, and really be very global in how we unfold and how the conference unfolds. Exactly what that means is yet to be determined, (laughs) (laughs) but stay tuned. It will be there. But I think that your larger question of, you know, what does Epic do in in this age of pandemic when the world has been upended and uh, will remain so for some period of time? The, you know, a few weeks ago, we wrote a, a, a post on Epic People and, you know, I described ethnographers as, as tenacious, as curious, improvisational, thoughtful, reflective as a group, right? We are. And it, you are the first person I think would agree. And you've talked about those kinds of, of qualities in ethnographic thinking. But as a community, then, I think what that means is that, that we can sort of decode what's happening. We can absorb what's happening a bit to individuals. We can absorb that as a community and we can, and we can help navigate, you know, some of the ramifications for the impact on, you know, work and remote work or colleagues and friends and communities and neighborhoods. So, you know, that's, you know, as a, that's what, what Epic, you know, that's how Epic would, I think the values and the mission of Epic sort of will materialize in, in this age as a community, in this age of the, of the pandemic. And a recent Epic talk that we, that we constructed for just entirely that reason was life and work in the pandemic and 150 people signed up literally over the weekend. So, and it, what was really interesting in that, in that, web talk slash webinar is that you know it it was pretty grim we had people well first of all we had people from from australia to the ukraine who were participating so for some people it was super early in the morning and for some people it was quite late at night and it it went from from feeling from individuals kind of coming on feeling like this is a pretty grim situation to feeling a bit hopeful by the end and Mm. not that we won't be upended and not that things won't be very difficult, but there was, I think in the collective conversation of recognizing um, that this also was an opportunity. One of the observations that that people made were, you know, were that the the boundaries, you know, between us um, and our roles are pretty porous. We think oftentimes our, our work is conducted in a bit of a silo, right? So whether the silo is the team or the silo is is the research project and we have we have research participants, right? We mm-hmm. we have these kinds of buckets for thinking about our own actions and and the research process. I think what people have have come to realize in this in, in all of this is that those silos are kind of arbitrarily constructed. They, they're, they're kind mm. of convenient, right? Because we can, you know, we can put boundaries on things and, and we can be efficient 
in keeping boundaries on things. But in fact, there's, there's interweaving all the way through it. And that as, you know, citizens, consumers, employees, or employers, or our stakeholders, or whomever, that we're all in this together. So, so if, so one example that, that, that came up was, you know, someone who was doing a research project with small business, small business has you know, obviously hugely impacted by a pandemic, yeah. people are laying people off and so on, closing their doors, that does one, how does one, like, what is research then, right? And what's the, what does it mean to do research in, in, in those situations? And the, the solution, one of the, the thoughts was, is that you're actually community making as, as much as you are doing research, right? right? So that people are connecting with each other. There is a sense that you're creating something and, and, and perhaps, you know, those are, those are lessons we need to retain when life is a little calmer, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so it, it allows us to ask questions and to, and to, I guess it allows us to ask questions about the nature of the research process, what it is that we are producing when we do research, what should we be producing when we do research? Mm-hmm. And as, yeah, I guess that's, that's, so that's one form of, of, of opportunity. The other is that we can observe social change. It's a time where we can observe social change as it unfolds, right? So right. what's the nature of remote work? How, you know, what are the reference systems that people are using to interpret what's happening and, and what work is, what work is, or work in home, or so it, it allows a reflective piece as well. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, storytelling lately. I'm focusing there this year and thinking about how storytell- stories themselves, you know, there are ways of expressing values and share, you know, sharing values. And they're, they're certainly one form that humans use as learning. One of the, one of the primary forms of learning um, is through story. Right. And paying close attention to that now is an interesting thing to think about. How are we using stories to interpret the pandemic? How are we using stories exactly. to cope with it? You know, and to think about that as a research object. But then also, as you mentioned, like, what are the stories we're bringing back? You know, how is it that we as practitioners are thinking about the stories we share yeah. and the kind of positioning that that has as well? So, yeah, there was a, you know, the, the, the there was a point that was made by one person in the in the talk that we all know and we but deserves sort of restating sometimes right and the and this time the situation right now sort of provokes us to to revisit it and that is that that research shouldn't be extractive right it's not it's not something you go in and do and take out mm-hmm. especially as as ethnographers right we are absolutely sort of aware that the work that we do is 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 one of that is reciprocal it's one of reciprocity that's it's the nature of ethnographic praxis Mm -hmm. so and and it seems particularly apparent to to not only us as ethnographers but to now to some of the stakeholders who are involved in in the the work process in our organizations and that's actually i think really great that is a great point. Totally. I and mean, you're definitely seeing people understand a bit more about what that, 
what the reflexive nature of, of what we do and how it, you know, how it impacts everything we do in right now, for sure. Right. But there are so many people who are in that, in this, um, in this struggle moment in terms of understanding, you know, people. Right. Exactly. And we have an opportunity to bring in different, different models and structures for understanding people. I think that, that there is a sort of, you know, that the disruptive moment allows for that. And I guess mm-hmm. I would just say one other thing, Jay, and that is uh, in terms of sort of epic in the age of, of, of the pandemic. So yes, our conference will go virtual. We're introducing different kinds of talks and opportunities on epic people, and that will continue. And some of those will be ad hoc, just depending on sort of what bubbles up, what surfaces among, uh, among members. Some of them will be really practical. Some of them will be very reflective. But it's a time to, with that community-making moment and feeling like you can, you can gain insight by the collective observation of the, of the group, I think is, is a very powerful one. And uh, so that's what, we, that's what we have been, that's what will, what will unfold over the next few months. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how you guys structure the the gathering. So I'll be I'll stay tuned yeah. as well. Others, yeah, I'm do sure. yeah for sure. <laughs> Is it like epic around the clock now? We can, we can go twenty four hours. Can. Remember, we have a staff of very few, so no. <laughs> but things will be on the video library permanently, and and we are trying to do. Usually, we have a an epic talk once a month, and there will definitely be more than that. So yeah, yeah. So I wanted to shift gears as we yep. uh, as we think about this too, and thinking about like sort of what's what it, what are you seeing as sort of early signals on the horizon for you know how ethnographies and in, in industrial settings are are how are how we're changing, how our approach might be changing. Are there are there any things that you're hearing about or seeing that are indicators there? One of the ways I think that the epic community community and epic has changed is sort of witnessed in the last few years by the the themes of the conferences, evidence, agency, and now scale. And what those particular themes, you know, sort of illustrate is uh, the desire to engage with conversations outside of our own ethnographic interests, perhaps, right? So we're not, it's not so inner focused. How were we heard? What value do we create? You know, what's best practice, right? We're, we're, those, and, and those are really important things. And those are questions that we, we do pose and in, in, in other ways. But, but, you know, questions of scale or agency or, or evidence speak very much to how do we engage with people outside of our spheres, you know, the, the people that we work with, engineers, data scientists, product innovators. And so I, so that's what, so, so Epic has changed in that way. And I see more, I guess I see more of that in the horizon. And that comes with uh, a certain, you know, sort of professionalization. Yeah. I was just going to say the same thing. I think that's an indicator that, that we're growing up. <laughs> exactly. And I, exactly. So I think it's like, it's, it's, it's really great. And and the marketplace has changed too, right? So it's not it's not not just like internal change to Epic, but 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 the marketplace has has shifted. For example, you know, I guess I sort of see Epic as as just 
kind of an historic convergence in certain ways of three different industries. One is design, one is technology, and one is consumer research. You know, they came from three very different kind of backgrounds and activities in the, in the 1980s. And while Epic initially anyway was, was born from, you know, people in, in, in technology companies, Microsoft and Intel, to, to get together and, and to create a sense of, you know, sort of shared body of knowledge. Design came through, you know, and then consumer research, the, the consumer products companies of the world, financial services, automotive, all that also became mm-hmm. part of it and, and convergent. So, so design, design companies were now creating brand experiences, right? Technology and, and the, you know, automation and so on is now completely infused in, in consumer, you know, consumer products companies. So, so that kind of convergence, uh, I think also brings in different kinds of models, different kinds of understandings, different ways of doing that we will, that that will also sort of play out into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's we can't help but absorb some of those things. I think as ethnographers, exactly. exactly. So, let's go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I guess I would just say, and one other thing is that one of the the changes that I think is here to stay as well is is to think more systemically, and mm-hmm. if the you know if nothing else, the the co the conference co-chairs this year and choosing the theme of scale were completely prescient in that regard right and and just how our actions are so intertwined on a on a on a global on a global level uh, but we need to be thinking more systemically and i think that the world is ready to think that way as well more ready to think that way than perhaps in the past yeah, so we might get was, out of that psychological profile yeah. itself, right? <laughs> Possibly. Exactly. We're realizing we're all connected finally. Well, finally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, I think you know, the meat and baits in school of systemic thinking is really starting to become more relevant than ever, too. So they were, they were talking about these things long, long, long ago. Long ago. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, so one, go back to your point of, you know, we need, a, we need some public intellectuals from anthropology. Yeah. Yeah. This may be the moment, but I wanted to um, thank you and also wrap up if you're open to it with a few um, rapid fire questions, just some quick responses. Okay. Um, (laughs) The first one is um, if there's one thing in the research industry that you wish you were able to change, what would it be? Mm, Yeah. Okay. I think I have two, sorry. Uh, the first is our reliance still on the sovereign community, the, the, the sovereign consumer. I just wish we could just get rid of it. And a little bit of a corollary for those of us who are doing ethnographic work, uh, the over reliance on on the motif that we are sort of we're uncovering the real consumer, the reliance on the real. I wish we could just disband with right now forever. Mm-hmm. Like as if it's that we're. We are the sort of representation of reality. You mean exactly. we're bringing that representation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it just leads us down to now. See, we're not being rapid fire anymore, Jay. We're getting now. <laughs> but it leads us down a road that I think is not. It is absolutely not productive. In the end, 
because then we're arguing over different methods and modes of, of what, what counts as real rather than looking at people as social actors and cultural systems and, and, and illuminating and theorizing relationships. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Second one is what advice would you give to someone who's beginning to explore a career in ethnographic research? Join Epic. That was an easy <laughs> one. <laughs> and engage with, with like-minded others. So find, find some community so that you can bring yourself up to speed about sort of the discourses and, and possibilities and approaches and challenges. Like-minded people, like-minded others, I think are, is, is a very important thing to get started. Yeah, I'll second that one. And then finally, um, what have you read recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? All right. Uh, I read this great book uh, a month or so ago called The Sea People by Christina Thompson. And, and it really tackles the, the mysteries of Polynesian navigation. I know this is not very ethnographic, but in some sense it is in the end, because she looks at the different narratives. You talked about storytelling. She looked at the different stories that people have told over time, from early explorers to the present day, the stories they've told about Polynesians and navigation systems and, and theories of what, what, in fact, how, how did Polynesians sort of navigate thousands of miles and, and was there a system and how did, how, what are the stories were that we, we constructed around that. So, and what it made me realize once again, first of all, it's eloquent and it's a page turner, even though it's nonfiction, but right. what it made me realize once again is how limited we are by our own reference systems. We have a way of constructing something and we don't always examine it. And mm. so it reminded me once again about how the, the, the power of reference systems uh, and, that, and that ethnographers as a group are really good at examining reference systems. Yeah, I'll have to add that to my 50,000 book long list of- Yes, exactly, good luck with that. <laughs> Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Rita, for having our discussion and being on Ethnopod today. It's been a pleasure as always. Jay, thank you. I appreciate in, in turbulent times to carve out the space and it was really, it's always fun to talk to you. You as well. And if people want to connect with you in any way, can you, do you have a, a way that you prefer? Twitter, LinkedIn? or LinkedIn is great. That's what I, yeah, I would say LinkedIn. Great, great. All right. Hopefully we'll see each other in the future sometime soon. And thank you again, Rita. Oh, thank you, Jay. Take care.